Let me invite your attention to Genesis chapter 18. And I have to say to you, um, this may possibly be the most depressing message you've ever heard. Uh, there's nothing fun about uh, this text. Now, towards the end, there's some exhortation and some encouragement, but this is not a happy story because it's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, archaeologists have looked at the biblical text and described in some very stark terms what happened in uh, Sodom and some surrounding cities when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they say regardless of the point of origin in the first place it's obvious that the fire that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah started in the skies. It did not represent a breaking open of the earth and the rising of uh, matter and material from there. It started in the skies. In fact one theory uh, they initially thought uh, when I think that they were probably looking at the wrong place uh, but nevertheless, they, they initially thought that what they were looking at was a center for cremation, but then concluded that the fire started in the roofs of a particular place and uh, identified it as Sodom. Uh, the second thing is that when the burning mass from the skies struck the surface of these cities, Sodom included, it caused the region's cities and vegetation to burst into flames. Uh, possibly even blowing or sweeping the city's uh, mud brick structures off their foundation. Then third, the thunderous firestorm was so concentrated that the inhabitants were unable to escape death. The description of the fire uh, made it logical that some people were vaporized. Some burned or were asphyxiated from breathing smoke or superheated air. Others were killed by the concussion effect of the blast or trauma caused by disintegrating objects such as stone and brick. Um, whatever it was that came from the sky was coming at an extremely high velocity towards the earth. And its impact would produce what they would call an electromagnetic impulses that look like lightning that struck. The fourth thing is that in the aftermath, a great column of smoke and disintegrated debris could be apparent from a city like Hebron about 45 miles away. And these cities were catastrophically destroyed or overturned. They, they were left in utter ruin, not partially removed, but entirely removed from visibility just blown away one moment they're there the next moment they're gone um, it represented a disaster uh, that comes from Steve Collins an archaeologist at Trinity Western University who has um, uh, co-authored a book entitled discovering the city of Sodom and Gomorrah I, I believe it's probably wise to take this passage seriously Ruth Graham said that if God does not judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. The passage here in Genesis 18 and 19 is really one story. Uh, the chapter division here was not necessary. came centuries after the Bible was um, uh, written, of course. So um, 
but uh, it, the, the chapter and verse divisions are very helpful. But you need to know Genesis 18 and 19 is one story. And how it's structured is very interesting. And I don't mean to get too technical, but I want you to understand what we're looking at here. Um, it is in a structure that literary scholars call a chiastic structure, which means um, the first and last paragraph of the story is about the same subject. The second and second of the last paragraph is about the same subject. The third and the third to the last subject or paragraph is about the same subject. The fourth paragraph does not have any parallel and that's the point. And that's Genesis chapter 19 verses 1 through 11. I'll read more than that. But the first and last paragraph are about the birth of sons, Isaac and then Lot's sons that became Amnon and Moab. The second and second to the last paragraph are about the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. The third paragraph is about God not judging the righteous with the wicked. And the third to the last paragraph is about God not judging the righteous with the wicked. The primary driver of the passage is the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. Um, as we read this, you need to know the impulse in the Christian faith to oppose sexual immorality, especially homosexuality, I believe is found right here. The reason I'm such an opponent of gay marriage, legitimization of homosexual behavior, or any sexual immorality is that I don't want God to do to people what happened here. That's it. I don't think that homosexuals, or lesbians, or others are necessarily inferior. God loves them. God made them in His image. Um, I don't want any of them to suffer. Uh, but the point is, I don't want God to do to them what He did to Sodom and Gomorrah. I just don't want that to happen. If you have any love and good sense and at least some biblical understanding, you will be an opponent of gay marriage and homosexual behavior and immoral sexual behavior. The greatest curse you could ever give to others is to support that because you're ushering them into this kind of threat and greasing their way. It is not compassionate to compromise the Word of God. Chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face towards the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may 
know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them to you, and you may do to them as you please, or as you wish. First case of least uh, proposed human trafficking. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting like a judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary of trying to find the door. Well, he tells them in verse number 12, go find other relatives and tell them to flee and get out of this place. And then they escape. And we pick up the story in verse 23. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar, where he escaped to. Then the Lord rained fire and brimstone, brimstone and fire, on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. I want to address tonight, before the brimstone falls, before the brimstone falls, let's analyze the text and ask and answer the question, what's the subject of it? There are liberal scholars who will argue this is not about homosexuality. This is about a lack of hospitality towards some visitors in the city and a hospitality that was expected of uh, ancient people. Inhospitality, not homosexuality. Let me reply and respond. One, there is hospitality in the text. Lot offered it. So it's silly. See, have you ever found people who handle the Bible in such a way that they come up with an idea, then they start searching for a text to justify it? That's what you've got here. Well, they don't read the text very carefully because the text says in um, uh, chapter um, 19 and uh, verse number 3, he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house, and then he made him a feast. That is hospitable. There is hospitality in the text. So it's not about inhospitality. Then second, there's the use of the word know in verse number five, a knowledge. And it is a euphemism for sexual relations. It is the word used in Genesis 4.1, for Adam knew his wife and uh, she bore Cain and Abel. And uh, it is a euphemism for the sexual experience, uh, any kind, in fact. Third, the word wickedness. Lot said, do not do so wickedly in verse 7. Inhospitality was never considered wickedness. It's rude, it's offensive, but it's not considered wickedness at all. Uh, the word wickedness, in fact, here in this text, in Genesis 19, is the same word used for the sinful behavior of the world before the flood that begged God to judge the world with the flood. And so that's the same word that is found here. It is an intense wickedness. Um, Inhospitable behavior may offend some, but it, it does not qualify as wickedness. Then daughters. 
Lot offered his daughters. Now, I've never been able to get my mind around this. Uh, I, I don't know why he would do that. But he did as a substitute for these men that had came. That didn't satisfy them because they were homosexual and they wanted men. And, uh, but nevertheless, Lot does this bizarre thing and offers his daughters. And he does so by offering them as a sex toy to these men. So the issue in the passage is about immoral sex. It's not about inhospitality. Now, the mindset of the ancient people was you would rather something happen to your family than happen to your guests. Well, look, all bets are off at this point, for crying out loud. They're surrounding the house. Don't offer them anybody. But that, that's what's being offered here. And so the passage is about immoral sex and not inhospitality. Number five, uh, the word adultery. Through Jeremiah, the Lord complains about the adultery of men and women in Judah. And he says this in Jeremiah 23, 14. All of them are like Sodom to me. So Sodom represents immoral sexual experiences. And then Jude, number six, uses the word immorality. Jude says that the citizens of Sodom had given themselves over to sexual immorality, not in hospitality. So on the authority of the word of God, the subject is about homosexual behavior. It is also, and I don't know if you've noticed as you've read the text, but it's about a full array of sexual experiences. It begins with Abraham and Sarah having the opportunity to have Isaac through normal uh, husband-wife relationships. Then there is the homosexual uh, behavior element. There's rape that appears here. And then at the end of chapter 19, there is incest as well with Lot and his daughters uh, when they got him drunk. So this whole text is surrounded by these particular issues. Now I want to move on after discussing that, and I want to apply the biblical text at this point. What in the world do we do in a world that it represents and looks more like Sodom than it does Jerusalem? What in the world do we do? Well, one is to prioritize our posterity. Prioritize our posterity. Prioritize the kids. That is the enormous challenge of a sex-crazed age where immorality becomes okay. Uh, the truth is, is that when that happens, Children are not as well taken care of as they could be if adults restrained themselves and kept themselves for marriage. In fact, um, Janet uh, Morse was a libertarian at one time. She was very conservative on the economic issues and very liberal on the social issues and sexual issues, and then she had children. You know, when you don't have a marriage and family, you, you, you can afford to be pretty liberal. But as soon as you get married and have kids, you can get really conservative really quick, can't you? And that's what happened to her. And now she's writing from a Christian perspective. And um, she's written this, describing the libertarian and the homosexual mindset regarding children. She says, homosexual adults are entitled to have what they want, they claim. Children have to take what we give them. Ladies and gentlemen, you can talk about sexual freedom and pursue that, or you can pursue the well-being of children, but you cannot pursue both at the same time. Adults have got to restrain themselves. And that's what, the, that's what I think that the bookends of this passage are indicating. We've got in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 18, the beginning of the passage, we've got Abraham and Sarah 
at an older age, contemplating and actually having the promise that in about a year Isaac will be on the scene. And then we've got the end of the passage at the end of chapter 19 with Lot and some of his posterity. I don't think that's a mistake. Jesus does the same thing with the issue of divorce in Matthew 19. He talks about in verses 1 through 10, then picking up right after that, he starts talking about the kids. When it comes to adult behavior, they must never, ever prioritize personal freedom, but they prioritize the kids. They prioritize their well-being. They consider, what will this do to children? And ladies and gentlemen, I want to make it abundantly clear, when it comes to sexual behavior, there is no better guide than the Word of God, and there is no better guide to raising children who are thriving and experiencing the best possible well-being than going by the Word of God. Prioritize the posterity. Prioritize the children. The second thing is to emphasize prophecy. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm not the kind that finds prophecy in every passage of the Bible, maybe every other, but look with me in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus begins to talk about the future. And he mentions a couple things relevant to Sodom in verse number 23 and in verse number 24 of Matthew chapter 11. Sodom should shape how we view biblical prophecy. And Jesus does that. He uses Sodom uh, then as a platform from which to teach some very significant and very urgent truths about biblical prophecy. One happens to be uh, that Sodom should increase our receptivity to the gospel. And, And that's the problem with the culture not knowing about Sodom. The knowledge of Sodom will increase others' receptivity towards the gospel. Matthew eleven twenty three, 23. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to hell, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Jesus is saying Sodom was more receptive than Capernaum, and nevertheless it was obliterated from the face of the earth. So there is a softening effect and should be a softening effect that verse 23 has on the heart of humans. Because if it does not, then hell is in the future, in a prophetic sense, of those who reject the gospel. But that's not all. Not only receptivity, but it should increase our responsibility in verse 24. It actually does. He said, but I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment, a prophetic subject, than for you. Uh, In other words, he's preaching about the local cities there that have had exposure to his word and his works. And they have not received the gospel. They've not received it at all. And he said, Sodom is going to have, now listen to this, Sodom is going to have an easier time than you're going to have on the day of judgment. They were not exposed to my word They were not exposed to my works. Leonard Ravenhill used to say, Sodom had no Bible. But these folks, and these folks, have access to the Word of God. And it doesn't matter anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, you've got access. Now, it used to be that access to the Bible was limited by um, whether or not you had a local Christian bookstore. Not so anymore. 
Bibles can be downloaded and downloaded for free in multiple translations. And even those that cost a little can be purchased for less than $10 with a download on a phone. And so it's much easier to carry one today. Sodom didn't have that opportunity at all. And yet God obliterated it from the face of the earth. If God did that with cities that did not have a Bible, what will he do in a nation that in which nearly every home has got one and 25% have got four? It increases our responsibility. But, but then there's another thing that uh, Sodom does with prophecy. It, it should increase our readiness. Look at Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Jesus continues the prophetic theme beginning in verse 28. The heartbeat and the pulse beat of scripture when it comes to prophecy is to be ready. And don't get bored with that notion. Do, do not go grow accustomed to it. Jesus could come at any moment. We've got to be ready and ready now. In other words, the whole world, and, and Jesus uses these terms, Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 as well, Jesus especially in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7 and 8, the whole world is pregnant and about to give birth to judgment. We're, we're, we're not at the second week. We're not at the 13th week of pregnancy. We're, we're not at the 24th. We're not at the 30th. We're not at the 36th. Beloved, we're at 40 weeks and we're about to get into the 41st one. It's ready. We've got to be ready. Luke chapter 17, verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. Where's what they were doing? Just going about their business. They ate. They drank. They bought. They sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. There was no warning. Came like a thief in the night. You ever been robbed in your home? Our car got robbed a few weeks, a few months ago in our subdivision. One time our home was broken into. And um, when we lived in Alabama, they uh, looked for money. They found a little bit, were disappointed, probably left real soon. Uh, they didn't take any Bibles, by the way. But uh, we, we've been robbed a couple of times. Um, I've had uh, bicycles stolen when I was a boy, right after getting one for Christmas. All of these thieves had one thing in common, at least. None of them announced that they were coming. None of us said, hey, listen, at about 11.30 tonight, we're going to swipe your bicycle. Or at 4.30 in the afternoon, we're going to break into the back door, bust it wide open through the deadbolt, and come rummage through your room and steal things. They didn't tell us that they were going to do that. Scripture compares Jesus coming to a thief in the night. Verse 30, even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So we prioritize our posterity. We emphasize prophecy. But then third, because of Sodom, we evangelize pagans. In chapter 18, Abram is so struck by this news that God gives him through these angels that 
he's going to judge Sodom. But he goes and he looks at it. And he begins to pray. And he doesn't want Sodom destroyed. He's probably had some dealings with Sodom, some business dealings and others. And he looks and he starts talking to God. The text says he stood before the Lord. I mean, he stopped long enough to stand in the presence of God and stand in the gap and plead with God on behalf of Sodom. Are you praying for anybody living in Sodom today? Anybody aggravate you out of Hollywood? What about the music industry? Anybody aggravate you out of that? What about any local political organizations? I'm praying for two locally that um, their positions kind of scare me. I pray for them every morning. Are, are, are you praying for anybody living in Sodom? Well, this is what Ab- Abraham does. He, he says, um, Lord, in that city, it's a big city, um, w- will you not destroy the righteous with the wicked if, if you look into Sodom and you, can't, and you find 50 righteous people? Is that enough to restrain your judgment? Lord says, I won't destroy it if, if there are 50 righteous people. Abram starts thinking, you know what, that's kind of exaggerated, that's kind of optimistic. Uh, How about 45? And he thinks, that's a bit optimistic. How about 40? And he gets it down to 30, and down to 20, and he gets it down to 10. God says to him, in this large city, I will not destroy it if I can find merely 10 righteous people. Abraham got to that because surely Lot and his daughters and his sons-in-laws, grandchildren, maybe a couple folks he's won at the gate, surely they could find ten righteous people there. That's how low God was willing to go numerically to keep from destroying the city. And this is reflected in Abraham's prayer. Abraham has compassion in prayer for Sodom because God has compassion for Sodom in heaven. In verse 14 of chapter 19, the angels tell Lot, tell your family, get ready, and let's get out of here. So Lot goes to his sons-in-laws and daughters in verse 14 of chapter 19 and says, hurry, let's get out of here because the Lord is going to destroy the city. So here's what you've got. You've got two things. You've got prayer and proclamation. Prayer and personal witnessing. Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest thing we can do for the city of Sodom is to offer the goodness and the grace and life, eternity, transforming power of the gospel of Christ. And that is precisely what happens here. Now look, I'm going to tell you, I'm like anybody else. I can look at this and I can be tempted to get angry. I do not like what I see happening to children. I don't like. We have not decided as a nation at almost any level outside our families and churches and families in the church that we're going to prioritize the well-being of kids. And I can point to multiple examples of it. It bothers me. It bothers me when I see that. And constantly, we had one time, one um, young lady come up to uh, Sherry, Michelle, and me and, and to our kids, and they were kind of confused why Michelle and I were together with children. So y'all live in the same house? 
Y'all are married? You've got your kids underneath the roof with you? It was an oddity. It was an oddity. And that is becoming, ladies and gentlemen, that is becoming the cultural norm. Do you know marriage has just about disappeared from America in the poor classes? Completely, nearly, completely disappeared. It's becoming the practice, sociologists say, of only the college educated. And so, we look like an oddity to some. Okay, that's the kind of world we have. Listen, you can be tempted to get angry with that. You'll never, ever win anybody being angry. You've got to love and treat them with the compassion of Abraham, which manifests the compassion of God in heaven. That is the only antidote to a culture that has gone wild. The world, our society, our culture, our people in the world have got to do more than straighten up and fly right. Oh, how many times I've heard that in churches. If they just straighten up and fly right, if they would just come to church, if they would just obey the Ten Commandments, hey, that's good after you're saved, but before you're saved, it's frustrating because it's impossible. We're asking corpses. We'd be asking corpses. To perform a miracle when there are Christians with Christ in their heart that struggle enough with these things. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the saving gospel of Christ, of the grace of God that makes a difference. And so let me just tell you, let's blow it wide open right here. You will never, ever witness to the wrong person. You'll never, ever make a mistake telling someone about Jesus and his transforming, gracious gospel. That's what's in this text. That and in that is found the hope of the world for life transformation. How do I know? Well, read the book of Acts. It was no different there. The whole ancient world that Paul saw was Sodom and Gomorrah. And God sent a fire-breathing, leather-lunged gospel preacher into the midst of it to establish churches that were founded on the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That is God's antidote to the crazy, careless, reckless lives that we see outside the will of God. Let's do it. Father, thank you for your word. We bless you so much for being so kind.